Welcome to Venture in the South, a podcast about startup investing in the southeastern United States. Our hosts are experienced angel investors with over 90 startup investments. We'll share some Southern wisdom while exposing you to the vibrant startups here in the South. Welcome to Venture in the South. I'm David, and I'm joined today by Paul, my co-host, And we're going to focus today on startup valuation strategy and the negotiation that gets to evaluation. Um, We're going to provide some examples as well as illustrate some of the challenges and how they can be overcome. But before we launch into that, listeners, uh, if you like our podcast, please take a few minutes to rate and review our pod on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's really uh, important for our podcast. So first, Paul, uh, let's make a few things clear. Today, we're talking about private companies, not public companies. So the valuation process is completely different. So it's important to listeners to understand that. And then private companies are different. Um, Those with a significant revenue history, um, they have well-established conventional methods for evaluating them or valuing them. Uh, such as discounted cash flow, peer comparisons based on things like sales, revenue, industry, this sort of thing. And these methods aren't really relevant to early stage companies. And so I want me to make sure the listeners understand that we're not talking about that. Um, we're talking about startups that have a very short earnings history. And so you can't really rely on that. So next, let's understand why valuation is so important in early stage. Just early so, stage David, let me just interrupt you just for a second on that. So I agree with you. They are different. Um, the underlying philosophy is kind of the same, though. So the value of a startup today is the present value of its future cash flows, right? And that's true of a startup company or a publicly traded company. The, the publicly traded company has some cash flows, and you can go and really guess potentially more accurately what those future cash flows are and discount them back at some sort of established way to get to a valuation. So you're, you're, you're still looking at the future cash flows of the company in either situation. But on the startup, you just have no idea what they're going to be. There's no history for you to, to sort of extrapolate from. There's, you're basically valuing the potential future cash flow instead of a reasonable guess at what an actual future cash flow might be. So I, I do totally agree with you that they are different and a lot of them methods you would use um, in the public companies context don't really make any sense at all in the in the early stage context but the underlying philosophy is still the same this company that you might want to buy a piece of today you buy it for the potential cash flow that that, gener- that company can generate one day um, and so with a little bit of flexing of these traditional methods um, some holding your nose as well and some guesswork, um, you, can, you can sort of apply the same kind of ideas to the early stage space. So some of the methods we'll talk about later, it's not totally different. You're, you're trying to bring some of that later stage science to the early stage to some extent. Yeah, well, yeah. well said. Uh, I guess what I was referring to or thinking about is that in early stage companies, investors are typically looking at evaluation for exit that may or may not be related to revenue. So, for example, in a strategic acquisition, revenue is of lesser important, whereas an economic right. acquisition, that's the key thing. Um, and so it's, it's different in that regard. And also, as you mentioned, it's, you know, we're talking about the future, which no one can predict. 
um, and and basing those future predictions on a different set of things since there's no yeah. history of revenue right. or, or not much history of revenue. So it it's it's different but similar. So yeah, I'll buy that. Okay. Um, so next, Paul, let's understand why valuation is so important for early stage. What can you tell us about that? So, I mean, it's important for entrepreneurs to understand about valuation because oftentimes you are either selling now or or setting up something that will require you to sell later a piece of your company. And so you have to put a price tag on that. And the whole discussion around what the valuation is, is basically setting that price tag. So if you're selling preferred shares in your company right now, then you are selling a chunk of your company for X million dollars. So you're putting a valuation on the table today about what you think the company is worth today based on whatever valuation methods you, you, you know, are thinking about. Um, if you're using a convertible debt or a safe, then not, not imminently, you're not putting the, the price on the table necessarily, but you are maybe putting a cap on the future conversion price or you're suggesting what a future price might be. Um, but you are in some way selling a piece of the company. So there are implications um, you know, further on that you have to have some ideas about valuation for. So as an entrepreneur, you definitely want to know how much of your company you're selling and how much you're selling it for. For an investor, um, it's sort of the same in reverse. You, um, you want to invest in this company, but uh, you know, my startup that I started this morning, you're not going to invest at a $100 million valuation, I hope, um, because... That wouldn't make any sense. That you've got to find a, you've got to find a valuation that um, sort of makes sense, and to sort of elaborate on what that means, it's got to be a valuation that allows you to make a decent return if things go sort of according to plan. Because otherwise, because things don't go according to plan a lot, you'll end up with no money at the end of your investing career. So you've got to try to find a um, a, a, a limit on the price you're willing to pay for something in order to give you a chance of making some money on your portfolio as a whole. So you want to pay attention to valuation as well. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because there, there's competing interests there to some degree, largely perceived as competing interests when in reality they, they may not be. So yep. on the one hand, you have founders. On the other hand, you have investors. And you have different kinds of investors that have different parameters. So founders, they obviously want the largest valuation they can get. But there's there's some traps there. And the biggest trap uh, for that for for that kind of approach is the largest valuation is you overvalue the company, you don't produce the revenue to justify that or the or the progress in sales and revenue in terms of percentage growth. Um, then you end up having to finance at a down down round, which is very bad and hard to accomplish. Uh, so at a at a lower valuation than your original round, and so that's the pressure that's on founders. Whereas um, investors, they typically want to know that they're going to get a certain amount of the company, so some percentage, and that's a common yardstick used. That you know they want to get twenty percent or thirty percent. So then then the question is, okay, how much is twenty or thirty percent? Which is of course based on the valuation, and you have this issue with. Uh, convertible debt or safes even too, where the cap comes into play and, and there's competing interests there where you you have the founders, they want to have a high price, which essentially dilutes the investors because they they get a smaller percentage of the company versus the investors who want a, a lower price because then they get a, a higher percentage of the company and the founder takes the hit there. 
Um, so yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? Well, so I found that super confusing. And I think our <laughs> listeners probably did too. Okay. Um, and it is it, because it is a little bit confusing. Trying to figure out what the implications are of a given deal is not easy. So when you're looking to raise money from someone, it's definitely worth taking the time to figure out exactly what you're doing and what your strategy is and why. And you're right on the on the entrepreneur's case. It you know the easy answer is well, I want to get the highest possible price I can for selling a piece of the company right now. Well, maybe you do, but there are some implications later on doing that. Like your investors might not be very happy with you later. You might not be able to raise more money at a higher valuation later. Uh, you might be setting a price for your stock that makes it hard to incentivize uh, employees when they get stock options later. So there's all kinds of downstream things to worry about on specifically on setting a very high price today. Um, equally, you don't want to sell too much today because if you put too low a price in it, then the management team has less of the company and later investors might not find that very attractive either, thinking that the entrepreneurs aren't perhaps as well incentivized to be successful. So there's always a balancing act and there are arguments for a higher price or a lower price. Um, and at the end of the day, the right price is one that gets a deal done and everybody feels moderately happy, but not too happy with. And then so a, alignment okay. of interests. Yeah. That's yeah, right. that, that's yeah. probably the catch catchphrase there. But just to go back to the complexity part, so safes and convertible notes and warrants and all kinds of other complexities are, are nice and fun and you know make for lots of attorney's fees for doing deal documents and, and potential arguments along the way. But there's a lot to be said for trading a price for certainty. So I would rather pay a you know, a higher valuation today on a price round than what looks to be a lower valuation maybe on a note because of the certainty. I know what I'm buying today. Yeah. And I can make a decision. Yeah, that is attractive. So let me just point out to the listeners that we did do a show all about safes and convertible notes versus preferred equity. Uh, that was episode number nine. So if you want to refer to that. Okay, so <clears throat> let's go on to some some terms here that can be confusing, especially for new investors and, and sometimes for founders too. So we have different ways of describing the valuation. We have a pre-money valuation. We have a, a post-money valuation. And and the post-money valuation is the most confusing. So can you just explain those two terms, Paul? I'll give it a try. Yeah. So the pre-money valuation is, in simple terms, what the company is worth just before an investment is made into it. And the post-money valuation is what the company is worth after an, an investment has been made into it. And so let's just take very simple terms. Say I'm investing you know, $500,000 in a company with a pre-money valuation of $2 million, and I've just arbitrarily set that valuation at $2 million. then the post-money valuation is those two things added together, so $2.5 million in that example. That's a very simplified example, and so the reality is never quite that easy, but that's the basic idea. What are, what are the complicating factors to the post-money valuation? So, I mean, there are some math complicating factors. So um, let's say there's an existing convertible note in the company you're investing in. So that hasn't impacted my post, my pre-money valuation because it's not on it's not in the equity part of what I'm thinking about here, it's still in the debt part. But after I make this investment, it turns into equity. So that changes the valuation of the company. Um, the post-money valuation will reflect that converted note and so it will be higher than the 2.5 million I, I've got in that case. How much higher depends on the terms of that note. So that's one thing. Um, another thing that happens a lot is that option pools, so um, a, a set of options that are set aside for, for current or potential employees, those are often created or expanded at the point of a transaction. 
And that means there are more shares potentially after the transaction than there were before, which again changes the post-money valuation. Those are two pretty common ones. There are a whole bunch of others, yeah. um, just even on the math side. And then sort of conceptually, if I've got a company here um, that isn't very well capitalized, it, it's a startup, nothing much has been happening with it. You know, the, the entrepreneurs are doing a pretty good job. But then all of a sudden, I've got this check for $500,000 to go do something with. That's a much more attractive than just $500,000 of additional sort of value there. So everything is perhaps worth a lot more now than it was you know, as two separate buckets, a company and a pot of cash. Put those together, one plus one makes three. What's my sort of real philosophical valuation now? Um, and that doesn't get captured at all in, in any of these numbers, but it's an important thing to think about. This company is now worth a lot more because it can go do something much faster than it could have done before. Yeah. Um, so that's another sort of um, softer thought Talk about Talk a little bit about stacked notes because we see that frequently where we've had a company that we invest in has had several previous rounds of notes, maybe a safe round and then a note round or maybe two note rounds. Sometimes a note round, an equity round, another note round, and then another equity round. <laughs> yep. So we refer to that as stacked notes. And so that really complicates it also, right? Yeah, it does. So um, just figuring out what the resulting valuation is once you've simplified and fixed all that can be pretty hard to do. That gets into yeah. the waterfall waterfall analysis for the cap table, and we're going to do a separate show about that. It, it does, yeah. Later on, it, figuring out who owns what and who's entitled to what at the end is complicated, um, for sure. Uh, but even for now, in just terms of this round we're talking about now, what is the post-money valuation when I've got a couple of different notes and a safe and lots of complexity there? Who's owned what? It could take a while to figure out. Um, and then not only does it take a while to figure out, or it might turn off a potential investor because they don't want to go through the headache of trying to do that, it can also result in a very large number on the post-money valuation that you weren't expecting. Um, and if you're the investor and suddenly this deal is, at the end of it, twice as expensive as you thought it was, you're not going to be very happy with that. And yeah. You might reevaluate. Yeah. Um, so definitely paying attention to your your uh, capital stack now, what what debt you've got, what safes there are, um, and how that will evolve over time as your cap table, your shareholder register changes over time. Um, that can take some learning and some diligence for the entrepreneur as well. That's a that's a real piece of work, especially for a solo investor or an early investor. And and one of the big reasons why we generally favor a fund approach to angel investing for new investors or somebody who doesn't want to spend the time required to do this kind of diligence. So let's take a break there, and I'll ask again the viewers to rate and review. Venture in the South is brought to you by the Rolling South Fund, a rolling fund focused on Southern startups. The fund allows for quarterly investments with a minimum of just $5,000. For more information, visit rollingsouth.vc. Okay, Paul, we're back. And uh, I want you to briefly review the three main methods that are most commonly used in valuation of uh, early stage companies. Uh, we know that there's other methods, and we can touch on those, but there's three main methods, right? Yeah, there's the gut feel, there's the did a bit <laughs> of homework, and there's the wild-ass guess, right? Um, yeah, there's, um, there are a few different ways that people have tried to approach this. So recognizing that this is, these are early-stage companies with just a tremendous amount of uncertainty associated with them. So trying to figure out what a company is worth today is way more art than it is science. 
But people like to try to um, be consistent in their thinking and apply a bit of science if they can and try to figure out, well, does this feel like a sensible valuation that I can make a decent return on in the context of all the other things that I'm doing with my money or my angel investing? So there are a couple of methods that people have developed over time. Um, uh, none of them will claim to be the right answer. Um, and one thing we like to do is use all of these methods at once and see if they kind of triangulate something that looks sensible. And also look at the deal we did last week to see, is this twice the price of the one we did last week? Well, how do we feel about that? Um, is it really twice as strong an opportunity or not? So there are a lot of different, different ways to approach it. Um, so I basically divide them into two types. There's the kind of heuristic shortcut kind of methods. So some kind of simplified way to say, okay, this looks like it's worth X based on four or five criteria and some kind of scoring system with them. So the scorecard method is, is one of those. Um, it takes some of the factors that people think are important to startups, like the quality of the team and the size of the opportunity and things like that, gives them a weighting. You give them a score based on how you evaluate those criteria versus other startups. And then you do some kind of math, put them all together, come up with a number, see if that number is a high number um, relative to other things you've looked at, strong deal. If it's a low number, not such a strong deal. The actual specifics of any of those methods, I mean, there are 15 different types of scorecard methods with different weightings, different criteria, different, um, you know, different scoring systems, whatever works for you. Um, copying somebody else's, uh, developing your own. Um, it's entirely you know, up to you. At Venture South, we have 10 criteria that we use. Um, we give them a weighting that we think is a pretty good indicator of the likely out or the potential outcome of this. So we tend to weight more highly the management team and the exit strategy for reasons we can talk about maybe in another episode. Uh, and we weight them together in our secret proprietary formula and come up with a, <laughs> a number. Um, and if people like what that number seems to suggest, they might invest. If they don't, they don't. So that's our scorecard method um, as, as one example. Um, there's another good one. Um, a prominent angel investor called Dave Burkus came up with his method, um, and it's called the Dave Burkus method. There are some other ones uh, similar to that too. Um, he actually updated that, I think, uh, over the last five years or so as well. Um, and his his method there is to try to do the same kind of thing, um, but also factor in changes in geography, changes in business sector and you know, national economy and things like that too, just to add a bit more sort of context to, to the method. Um, and so the Angel Capital Association has a good way of, of describing the, the Dave Burkus method uh, as well. Um, the, the, some of the challenges with all these scorecards is you need to try to figure out what the right criteria are to evaluate, and who knows? You need to find up a scoring systems, and how do you weight those together? Who knows? Um, and what do you kind of set as the baseline? So, you know, even if if a company comes through this this process and scores an average rating, let's say zero to one hundred, and they score fifty, what does that mean for evaluation? Is the fact should that tie to a million dollar valuation or a seven million dollar valuation. So trying to judge the baseline that you're scoring relative to is another area of guesswork. Um, so all of these are useful. Uh, we use them sort of to try to set a context and, and really try to think about how strong the company is, but it doesn't really tell you at the end of the day what the valuation should be for a, for a company. So those are the kind of heuristic methods that, that people use. Um, 
the the method that um, we spend most of our time on uh, <laughs> as angel investors is somewhat ironically called the VC method, um, and the basic so the venture capital the venture capital method. Um, and this is a little more involved. Um, we could probably do a whole separate episode describing the ins and out of it. But the basic idea of the venture capital method is try to figure out what this company is going to be worth in f- in five years' time or at some point in the future when you think it's going to be bought rather than try to figure out what it's worth today. Because five years from now, with some you know wild guesses, you can come up with uh, what you think the company will look like. It will have $20 million of revenue, zero EBITDA because it's still burning cash because it's growing. Companies in this space um, with $20 million of revenue are generally bought for 1x revenue, say, I'm making all these numbers up, so we can expect it to be worth $20 million in five years' time. Okay, so if we can get some comfort around some of those things, um, and I'll talk about maybe how we get some comfort around some of those things in a minute, but knowing that this company's be worth $20 million at the, in the end, how much can we afford to pay for it today so that it's worth our time and money and risk to get to the outcome that is constrained by that $20 million. So I want a 10x return on an, an angel deal that I do. If it's going to be worth $20 million five years from now and I want 10x, so I can only pay $2 million for it today, simplifying a bunch of things. But that's the basic idea. And so that tells me today, well, the, the, this is worth to me, given my risk appetite and what I think this company can do, $2 million. If the entrepreneur agrees that that's reasonable, great, we have a deal. If they think it should be worth $20 million today, then we have a bit of a disconnect that we've got to figure things out around and might be worth not even trying that if there's a 10x difference in what we think the valuation is today. That's the basic idea of of how we're trying to use the future state of the company to back solve what we can afford to pay today. There's a lot of detail involved in that VC method, um, which we can dig into if you would like to, but it's kind of the most scientific way of putting a number on the table today from the investor's perspective about what they can, they can pay. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's really important, I think, for listeners to recognize that um, these multiples are based on a failure rate that's over 50%, maybe as high as 75%. So these expectations of a 10x return is what subsidizes these losses. And that's why you're aiming for these high returns because you're going to miss probably most of the time. Right. Um, and, and we don't, w- one thing we do know is no one is good at predicting which ones are going to win. Uh, and so we focus more on trying to limit the losses and less on picking winners. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that depends on your particular investment philosophy. Um, other people would say, I don't care about my losses because all I need to do is be in the one winner that generates my 200x return. That's the, right. the power law we were talking about on a previous episode. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it just, just depends on your on your philosophy. But when you come down to thinking about valuation, and we think that it's important to think about valuation because um, those 200x returns are few and far between, and you have to be lucky to get in them, and they certainly do help. But with a bit of prudent thinking at the beginning, m- maybe you can still make a good, good enough return without having to rely on those fluke winners. Um, and yeah, and that, and that illustrates a little bit of geographic uh, diverse or variety between, yeah. say, the West Coast and, and the Southeast, where in the Southeast, we're typically thinking, you know, a 5 to 10x return is, is a pretty darn good win for us. We love that. Yeah. Whereas uh, a lot of times in the West Coast, that's not good enough. Uh, it needs to be much higher, partly because they're taking 
more risks, and so they're having more losses. Yep, right. It's also a difference between a fund and an individual. A fund, a VC fund, needs a big win to return that fund um, and therefore go and raise another fund. An individual angel perhaps doesn't need that quite so urgently because they've got a bit more time, a bit more patience, maybe a bit more diversification. Um, so they don't necessarily need that fund returning monster home run yeah. um, to still feel good about having made these investments. So there's yeah. different different dynamics involved in, in all that. So but again, coming back to the valuation part, I mean, even people swinging for the fences with you know, just wanting that home run need to know the valuation concepts we're talking about here because other people involved in the transaction are thinking these things through as well. Um, and they don't, you know, you still want to make sure as an investor today that you're not making it impossible for your company to go raise money later by just not thinking about this stuff well so right. everybody's everybody's thinking about this and and you know every single investor has their spreadsheet of the venture capital method that lays out um this kind of stuff so that they can just sort of triangulate or get a ballpark feel about where where the valuations are yeah this this uncertainty about valuation that we can't escape uh underscores again the value of diversification realizing we're going to be wrong on these valuations a fair amount of time. And so diversification mitigates a lot of that risk. And that's the argument for a fund. And that's what we do at the Rolling Fund. So thank you, listeners. Thank you, Paul. And we'll see you again in a week. This podcast is supported by Venture Carolina, an educational nonprofit focused on angel investors and entrepreneurs. Our team is built from successful entrepreneurs, investors, venture capitalists, board members, and executives that want to give back. Thank you for listening. Please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Visit us at VentureInTheSouth.com for a complete list of previous and future shows and contact us if you have any comments or a request.